Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the September 19th, 2018 live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. Tonight we conclude our four-part series discussing the various narratives vying for control during the prison strike 2018. We've talked with representatives of prison abolition, with the father of prison slavery abolition, with an expert criminal justice reformist, and tonight we'll go over it all, what we learned, heard, said, and what we think. Our guests during this series and callers are welcome to participate and share your insight on this issue. We'll call this the wrap-up. On and near this day in history, on September 17, 1849, Harriet Tubman, Araminta Ross, and her brothers Ben and Henry escaped from slavery. Once they left, Tubman's brothers had second thoughts. Ben may have just become a father. 
the two men went back, forcing Tubman to return with them. Soon afterwards, Tubman escaped again, this time without her brothers and successfully. September 20th, 1830, the first national convention of free men agreed to boycott slave-produced goods. This first documented convention was held at Mother Bethel AME Church in Philadelphia on September 1830. Delegates to this convention discussed the prospect of emigrating to Canada to find refuge from the harsh fugitive slave laws and violent oppression under which they lived in the United States. And this past Saturday, September 15th, with the 55th anniversary of the bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, and two young boys killed shortly after the bombing, Johnny Robinson Jr. and Virgil Ware. All of them were children. In Direct Action News, the Right to Vote campaign needs your support. It's a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. The campaign grew out of the August 21st national prison strike demands, specifically point 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. And then also, remember to vote Amendment A in Colorado to remove the exception clause to slavery from the state constitution. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is David Walker, 1796 to 1830, author of David Walker's Appeal, a document that has been described as, for a brief and terrifying moment, the most notorious document in America. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is Timmy Duke. Timmy spent nearly 30 years in prison with 60 more to go for a burglary charge that happened while he was already in the jail. On, August, on January 23, 2018, Duke was released from prison. He was granted parole on the unauthorized use of a motor vehicle conviction and was granted bond on the burglary charge. As always, we have a little time and a lot to cover, and today is dedicated to discovery and understanding during a time of confusion. Be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see the information in real time as we talk about the issues. Also, remember, if you really want to support us, join our efforts by becoming a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. We need your help and support to continue. You'll find the links to today's program on our Abolitionist Planning page, which is available to BTR community members. If you've got a question or comment, you can call in at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? What's good, Max? What's good, Max? <laughs> man, I was looking forward to this week, man. I, I really would look from the very beginning. I was looking forward to the final process where we would kind of dissect the information that we gained, what we heard. Uh, and I'm glad that everybody had a chance to speak. That was what I was hoping they would do. What do you mean in the series as far as the uh, different uh, representatives of the yes. various movements? Um, yes. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier today, and those were the individuals who stepped forward to even come on and have the conversation, so we're very appreciative of them doing that. Um, I think that 
there was some common ground found even if we did not always agree on the root cause or even a solution um so i just want you know to just we gotta hash these things out man gotta have dialogue instead of you know um not working together in the areas that we can agree on um you know like we've oh i haven't said it in a while but you know when we first started uh doing it when you were still an anarchist and and would never think working with a politician or lobbying a politician to end slavery we said a death by a thousand paper cuts you know um so i just want to acknowledge the commonality um but there are some important differences, and I think that the series was um, a brainchild of yours, and I, I think it is a good blueprint for uh, that dialogue. So we can have further conversations on how to hash it out, what your plan is, and where is the intersectionality if we can't uh, make you a abolitionist. Um, so, yeah, Max, I, I, I um, really think it was a very informative series. Thanks, Scotty. Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. And just a heads up, uh, we may be getting some calls in tonight, a few people that I invited, like our former guests. And if they're not, they don't call in, they may be listening. But also, I think Crystal Roundtree may be calling us in, in here tonight as well as Jay, uh, Jailhouse Lawyer Speaks representatives, which is awesome, you know, because what we're doing is pretty much trying to come to a, a working idea of not only what the commonalities are, but what is keeping us apart. You know, and I, I've learned quite a few things uh, over these past three weeks. One thing I didn't get to do, Scotty, was explain to anyone really what the slavery abolitionist beliefs were, and that's because they're so crystal clear, like everybody already knows, and slavery. You know what I mean? So we never really got to do that. So, so why don't talking. you take the time to do that right yeah, now? Scotty, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I found an article, and I was talking to you earlier offline about it, and I was just looking up at the five things you may not know about Abraham Lincoln, slavery, and emancipation, and it's on the history.com channel. And I think it really not only explains what the opposition to our argument is, but also clearly tells you what the abolitionist movement is about. So I'll just read that. It says, one, Lincoln wasn't an abolitionist. Lincoln did believe that slavery was morally wrong, but there was one big problem. It was sanctioned by the highest law in the land, the Constitution. The nation's founding fathers, who also struggled with how to address slavery, did not explicitly write the word slavery in the Constitution, but they did include key clauses protecting the institution, including a fugitive slave clause and a three-fifths clause, which allowed southern states to count slaves for the purpose of representation in the federal government. In a three-hour speech in Peoria, Illinois, in the fall of 1854, Lincoln presented more clearly than ever his moral, legal, and economic opposition to slavery, and then admitted he didn't know exactly what should be done about it within the current political system. Abolitionists, by contrast, knew exactly what should be done about it. Slavery should be immediately abolished, and freed slaves should be incorporated as equal members of society. They didn't care about working with the existing political system or under the Constitution, which they saw as unjustly protecting slavery and slave owners. Leading abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison called the Constitution a covenant with death and an agreement with hell, and went so far as to burn a copy 
at a Massachusetts rally in 1854. So Lincoln saw himself as working alongside the abolitionists on behalf of a common anti-slavery cause, he did not count himself among them. Only the emancipation, and with his support of the eventual 13th Amendment, would Lincoln finally win over the most committed abolitionists. Like they said, Scotty, by contrast, abolitionists knew exactly what they wanted to do about it. So that's that's it in a nutshell, man. The, the clear-cut thing between us and many other uh, criminal justice reformers or organizations like that is we see this as a crime against humanity. We believe that they are doing it on purpose. That is the best system you've ever seen working at full capacity, doing exactly what it was intended to do, to continue legalized slavery. I mean, it's in the Constitution, as you just read, the abolitionists were were pointing it out back then, and the Constitution continues to protect the institution of slavery. It's just under new management. It's under government, direct government supervision. Even if we count the private prisons, those contracts are with the federal government. So all the 13th Amendment did was just put slavery under new management and then, as Frederick Douglass warned, uh, gave it another name. And one of those names was convict leasing right after the passage of the 13th and the uh, for the states, the second part of the 13th Amendment, which gave the states the permission to enforce Section 1, which says involuntary servitude and slavery shall be abolished except as punishment for crime. And as I said to you earlier, you know, Ava DuVernay's tagline to her documentary, The 13th, where it says from slave to criminal in one a minute, that's all they did was instead of using the, the label slave, which is more accurate in describing their treatment, not the human being that's the victim of slavery, but it, it, it accurately describes their treatment, and then you change it to criminal. Now they're, they're criminals. Let's pass a bunch of laws and selectively target certain parts of the population. Of course, back then, former, uh, uh, recently emancipated victims of slavery. And then you put them in the prison. Now your contract with the state, if you want this this labor, it's not going to be free anymore. But it's going to be it's going to be you know pretty much the slave wages that prisoners are 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 part of their demands uh, in this latest prison strike. Okay, so then lease them out to the major industry, not you know to the plantations as well. Um, some of them got trapped in sharecropping, but I'm talking about those who were unjustly put in prison and selectively targeted with anti-liberty laws and put in, in, into this new form of slavery under, you know, it's the same old slavery just under new management and different yes. parameters of how they capture the slaves. No, we're not going to import any more victims from Africa and put them on auction blocks. That is over. Now what you got to do is for the ones that's, that's here, because we ain't bring no more here, we actually want to get rid of them, like Lincoln said, and that's in that article you shared. We actually want them to, to get out of here and go back to Africa. Uh, um, so, so I mean, man, if you, if you, I think that that perfectly describes the rub between um, 
prison slavery or slavery abolitionists, which we determine, you know, there's not there's not much uh, daylight between our positions. We all recognize in the Thirteenth Amendment and that it's slavery. But then the reformists, that's what Lincoln was. He was a reformist. And, you know, when we went to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., during the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, um, we all, you know, gave a little, gave a little, um, um, some dialogue or some commentary on video about Lincoln with Lincoln's memorial in the back, in the background. We were up in there. And so Greg, you know, he accurately pointed out Lincoln was a politician. And he made the deals he needed to make to get into power and represent. And so he needed powerful people. And obviously, the southern states had a lot of power. That You know, they had ones with all the free labor and what have you. So he was cutting deals just to advance himself. And, and even after all of the sacrifice of all that bloodshed, especially for the Union troops, and then for him to cut a deal with the, the uh, former Confederate states so they'll come back into the uh, union is we'll keep allowing y'all practice slavery, but now this is how you got to do it. That's all the 13th Amendment is. I ain't mean to be long-winded, but it's the blueprint for modern slavery we're dealing with today. Yes, and there's a lot of confusion about the system itself as well as the actors in the system like Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, we've known a lot of research on Abraham Lincoln, and we remember that just prior to the Civil War, he was writing less letters to Justice Stevens telling him that the only difference between the North and the South was that the South wanted slavery to be available to everybody, and the North wanted to keep it restricted. And when he meant restricted, he meant what they were already doing in the North, which was convict leasing, like the kind that right. uh, mass graves have been recently discovered. Out, and out and there. there's another side to Lincoln Max that's not much mentioned, but the rub between them was the new territories in the Midwest, like Missouri, you know, uh, Kansas, and what have you. But this was land that they, they were killing um, Native Americans and taking their land. These were territories at the time which would later be admitted as states and the ab um, Lincoln the re the um the Lincoln types they didn't want to they didn't think uh, how can I say this man it's so he's so confusing or he confuses a lot of people he wasn't trying to abolish it he was just trying to prevent it from expanding and so I guess it's a group of, I guess, lukewarm abolitionists who didn't want that fight to end it, which eventually we had called the Civil War. But they were still just just trying to um, just trying to uh, make concessions just to prevent war. You know, like Dr. King said, there are some people who prefer prefer, um, you know, this uh this unstable peace, and I'm paraphrasing what he says as opposed to justice. And so, yeah, man. Well, that leads to something I want to share, some new information, relatively new information that happened in that same exact period when Lincoln was uh, playing both sides of the fence. There's a letter that was just recently discovered, and they found it at the Lehigh County Historical Society in Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
And basically, it was a form letter from Lincoln to Governor Madison S. Perry transmitting an authenticated copy of a joint resolution to amend the Constitution of the United States. Now, this went out to all the governors, even uh, those who were uh, secessionists in March 16, 1861. And what he was promoting and writing to these governors were for them to support the Corwin Amendment which was a predecessor of the 13th Amendment. Now, I want to read to you what the Corwin Amendment said. No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which was authorized to give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. Now, notice that. Also, state slaves. In other words, the amendment would forever guarantee the rights of the Southern people to own slaves. That was the first 13th Amendment that they sent out. Well, actually, and that was not just. by Lincoln in 1861, right before the Civil War. Well, actually, it wouldn't have guaranteed um, a supposed right to own human beings just to the South. We're talking about something that's part of federal, you know, government. These are federal laws, so. Well, it will be nothing to prohibit someone in the northern states to own, own, because they can argue, hey, you deny me my constitutional right. I deserve equal protection under the law. If they, if they can uh, practice slavery in Georgia, I ought to be able to practice slavery in Massachusetts. You see what I'm saying? In his, uh, you know, in Lincoln's inaugural address, Scotty, he said he had no objection to the Corwin Amendment being made express and irrevocable. That was in his inaugural address. Lincoln never had any intention of trying to free anybody. He was a lawyer trying to find a way to save slavery and not at the same time be the hero. And the transition, of course, was convict leasing, which had, they had already been practicing since 1777 with indentured servants from Europe. So, you know, when it happened in 1866, by 1869, many of the prisons across the South that had formerly been 90% white became 90% black. The switch was just that quick, and they immediately started leasing them out to the railroads and to the mines and sometimes to their former slave owners for free. In a letter that was written, well, in a book, there's a quote, and I read it here several times, by Jay Mancini in the book titled One Guys Get Another Convict Leasing in the American South <clears throat> and he says that with convicts so the only difference between slavery and convict leasing was with convicts so plentiful they were seen as disposable that was the difference between chattel slavery and prison slavery right there yeah I think I've m made argument in the past that it's actually more brutal. Slavery post-American Civil War is actually more brutal than it was uh, pre-American Civil War because these were people's, these um, enslavers were looking at them as their human property. Of course, there were some very abusive ones and, and all different types of abuse from sexual abuse to beatings, whippings. Uh, every once in a while, they'll kill somebody to make an example uh, of them, but in general, they weren't trying to cripple their labor force. You know what I'm saying? So, in prison today, man, 
That's why they don't care about if, if a prisoner kill another prisoner or if uh, allow rape to go on and, and other kind of stuff to create that environment that makes these humans turn animalistic and prey on each other, you know. Um, I'm, and then I'm not saying that everyone's in there animalistic, but we can't hide, you can't hide the statistics that's showing, you know, this, this level of inhumanity that's being produced by the prison system. And then often the guards, how many stories have we read about gladiator fights organized by the guards or guards coercing, you know, uh, um, um, prisoners to do, to do harm to other prisoners? We've seen too many stories of that. So, you know, um, yes, they, they are seen as completely disposable because they're easily replaceable. That's what we're dealing with. We do got a call, Max, uh, from the 336 area code. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I assume that you mean a 334 there, Brother Scotty. Oh, that's what justice. What's happening, brother? Man, you know, nothing I'm, to it, man. How y'all doing? That you sent me about uh, where the brothers was all spaced out in the prison with no kind of uh, guard presence whatsoever. I've never seen anything like that. Oh, man. Well, you, if you were here, you'd be able to see it every day on a regular, not just once or twice a day, but every day on a regular. You know, and it's, a, it's something that's a new fad in here. And it's, I, you know, I, I can't explain it for anybody on why they do what they do, but, you know, I will say this, that it's being condoned by the Alabama Department of Corrections. And, you know, Scotty was hitting it on the head just a, just a few seconds ago. You know, they don't care. They don't care if they die. They don't care if they overdose. They don't care if they kill. They don't care about none of that stuff right there, man. man. Because, heck, you know just as well as I know, we got bodies waiting to come in from the county jails. Right. And, you know, the video you sent me, I saw what must have been 30, 40, 50 men all spaced out on some drug. There was no guard presence whatsoever. Basically, if anybody dies, that's death by negligence, literally. Well, you know, let me go ahead and add on to that, Max. I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, one of the brothers that was in that video actually is to be said uh, have died uh, day before yesterday. And which was the day after that video was uh, sent to me. Man. You know, and there's something else that you, uh, we actually wanted you to come on and talk about. Scotty Reed uh, was communicating with you earlier about it. And that's the uh, prison official that's on leave during this uh, investigation on corruption. And that's uh, Culliver, who is the associate commissioner of yeah. operations on the DOC website. Yeah, Grant Culliver, which is the. Uh, Deputy Commissioner, uh, and you know, Keller has been around the uh, Alabama Department of Corrections for quite some time now, 30 years plus, uh, but I I'm actually receiving um, some grapevine talk from ADOC officials that are pretty much confirming exactly what I thought it was going to be about, which, uh, by the way, Grant Culliver has been investigated and complaints placed on him before the same thing in the past while he was a warden at Holman Correctional Facility, which was sexual harassment complaints. So uh, I was even thinking of the sexual harassment uh, issue again, which come to find out, I was uh, also told that it was had to do with embezzlement. Now, I haven't had neither one of those confirmed yet, but the embezzlement uh, issues that they're talking about was coming from previous commissioner, Kim Thomas, that was uh, also inside of it before uh, the, war, the, the commissioner we have right now in Alabama Department of Corrections, which is Jeffrey Dunn, uh, took over. 
which, of course, anybody who's been keeping up with the ADFC issues know that uh, Kim Thomas was uh, suddenly removed from office by Bentley a few years back, and Jeffrey Dunn took his place. Now, that was kind of odd and weird, other than him trying to say that uh, Kim Thomas didn't know what he was doing as a commissioner because of all the killings and uh, deaths that we was having and the strikes that we was doing here in uh, Alabama. But, you know, we're still waiting on the ADOC to come clean and, and finally give a statement. And as you know, the Attorney General of Alabama is actually uh, being reluctant to give a statement on why they're actually investigating a public servant, which is uh, beyond being non-transparent, which they say that they are which is crazy, and I'm wondering why the citizens of Alabama are not having a problem with this, because especially dealing with, you know, all the things that's going on in Alabama, especially you take the ADA uh, lawsuit that was, and the uh, mental health lawsuit that uh, was uh, filed by in, in case Dunn versus Dunn and Braggs versus Dunn, and, you know, that's another thing that came across the news uh, that Alabama Department of Corrections will be held in contempt by, uh, by the federal courts on uh not coming uh, and meeting the settlement requirements of the Braggs versus Dunn uh, face of uh, the mental health lawsuit. You know, I, I've been saying it now for a few years ever since the story unfolded, and the feds are investigating it probably as we speak. And that's the connection with the same for-profit corporations that brought the entire state of Mississippi prisons to shame. Like, literally, the... Uh, longest running commissioner, Christopher Epps, was facing as much as 80 or 100 years in prison for the corruption that he was involved in while he was writing these beautifully uh, uh, expressed terms about how their prisons were rated number one. Just recently, as many as 17 people have died in Mississippi prisons. And in the Fed reports, they're saying that there's a connection with the same people that are doing that there and with Alabama. I, I forget what call this investigation, but it's something like Operation Unicorn or something like that. But they are investigating, and I think it's right. And I don't think it ends with Alabama and Mississippi. I think you might also want to end, uh, add a couple of other st southern states who are highly involved in these for-profit prison industries like Florida. Uh, Max, if y'all don't mind, let me go on mute for a second, all right? Okay. For those that don't know, uh, our brother is calling us from behind enemy lines in the realest of terms. And uh, he'll be back shortly. Scotty, you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, Max. I had to step away for a second there. Um, but I actually wanted him to talk about this lawsuit um, that the prisoners of Alabama actually won. Um, well, I'm not sure. Well, uh, obviously, they would have had to been the plaintiffs, but I think the ACLU is the one who litigated the lawsuit where the courts in Alabama determined that the lack of health, mental health care workers in the Alabama Department of Corrections was unconstitutional and constituted cruel and unusual punishment. You know you have people with mental health issues and you're not giving them any treatment and actually the environment that, that you have created because it's prison slavery, it's, it, it worsens their condition. And so they have missed the deadline to hire more staff. So you just talking about earlier, you know, this official who, who is uh, on some type of corruption charges. And so they missed several deadlines. 
and the officials at the Department of, of Justice, whoever the you know the head man in charge is or woman, um, can face jail time. You know, I've talked about it on BTR News and using Joe Arapayo as the example of how he was in violation of court orders with with his tent cities and other inhumane conditions, and he actually ended up going to going to jail. Um, but that's that's the story that I wanted to um, give um, Swift Justice an opportunity to speak on uh, what he knows yeah. about it. Hey, tell me the background of that. Is that you, Swift? Yeah, yeah, it is me, man. I'm, I apologize for that. Um, I, what did I miss? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, can, are you aware of the lawsuit? I believe it's the ACLU that litigated the lawsuit where the, I, I guess it's, I'm not sure if it's a federal court or if it's the Alabama state courts have found the Alabama Department of Correction uh, in contempt or they're trying to get the judge or the courts to find them in contempt for missing several deadlines to hire more mental health workers because judges wrote a 302-page ruling saying that um, not having adequate mental health care for mentally ill patients, I mean prisoners, is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, had you heard about that? Your thoughts on it? I'm, I'm, I, that, that was the exact, uh, what I was talking about a while ago in, in Braggs versus Braggs lawsuit, which is the phase two of a, uh, of a multiple, uh, count lawsuit that was following up behind the, uh, ADA lawsuit that they had. And it was filed in 2014. Yes. Uh, and that, and Max, I know we had brought it up on the show before where Alabama had actually, uh, gotten rid of the contract dealing with Horizon Healthcare that was here in Alabama and they actually hired uh, a no-bid contract uh, Wexford Health which was taken out of uh, or kicked out of Mississippi behind some embezzlement dealing with the commissioner over there uh, and they brought in uh, brought this Wexford Health in for 300000 I mean $300 million I think it was for a three-year contract if I'm not mistaken Almost uh, I could be mistaken on that $82 million. say that again Three hundred and eighty-two million, Almost right? And that three hundred eighty-two million dollar contract, which is no be a contract, uh, to take over the health care and to bring in mental health, as far as trying to meet the settlement requirements of Braggs versus uh, Dunn, and they failed to do that. And uh, the more and more that we find out, we're finding out more and more individuals who are actually committing suicide, which you know followed right behind the uh, trial uh, phase of this actual Braggs uh, versus Dunn when Jamie Lee Wal- uh, Wal- Wallace, who was a witness at Bullock Correction Facility and Mental Health, actually killed himself on December 15, 2016, just a few days after he had testified. Um, but we, the actual suicide rate inside the Alabama Department of Correction has actually gone up since this settlement. And they have not brought in the adequate medical mental health care in Alabama that was required. And you know, the more and more that I, I push these guys inside the prison system and family members through Unheard Voices OTCJ, uh, Facebook and Twitter to actually report any mental health uh, issues that's going on that are being neglected. If you have family or whatnot inside the Alabama Department of Corrections to report them. And come to find out, many people have been reporting neglect of mental health because they're not getting it. And it's the same way with the health care. They're just plain out like not getting the health care and the mental health 
and it's all about the money is how much money we can save and that's all they're thinking about how much money can we save and how much money can we make off of these, these guys inside the prison system like I said murders through negligence you know it's just that's what it is and, and you got 380 million dollars to fight it and it's still happening it, it reminds me of when they found out so many men were being raped like 25 an hour in the prisons they addressed it to the prisons and said, you need to change this because it's a human rights violation. The reply was, we can't afford it. You got $382 million, but you can't afford it. Yeah, it will actually probably be cheaper if the um, state just hired these mental health professionals directly instead of privatizing everything because it's the profit motive. Because what else is slavery about but profit? So, you know, this no-bid contract. So it seems to me, okay... And correct me if I'm wrong, Swift Justice, but you have a private um, contractor who's supposed to uh, bring in health care as well as mental health professionals. So if they are, are responsible for that through the $382 million contract, why aren't they mentioned? Why aren't they being brought uh, to account? They're the ones who are supposed to hire these extra people. Uh, ultimately, yes, it's on the State Department of corrections and and those officials there who are ultimately in in contempt but it it seems to me that this corporation is is uh ignoring the george the uh judge the court's order as well they're in contempt because they're handling the contract well you know scotty man anybody who has followed alabama and i know both of you brothers have man it is a blatant um trail, so to speak. I mean, it, it's just a plain trail where Alabama throughout the years have basically thumbed their nose at any federal court rulings or state court rulings dealing with the Department of Corrections and even outside the Department of Corrections. You take, for instance, uh, Governor Kay Ivey recently on the uh, Confederate statues and stuff, and you know she's just plain outright saying, we're not taking them now. This is our history. We don't care about what uh, you say or anything like that. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's blunt that Alabama does not care what the federal government says is any violation of any constitutional rights. And even the citizens in the state of Alabama, you know, they're still stuck into the mind frame of, okay, why are they complaining? They did the crime. Why? why so they need to do the time. It doesn't matter what kind of conditions they're in. Uh, they need to be punished, and, and if we had it our way, they would be even. They wouldn't even be getting what they're getting. So you know, we're dealing with that mind frame in the South and, and that still lives on, uh, and, and we're doing what we can with Unheard Voices OTCJ as well as the Free Alabama Movement. Uh, we're doing everything we can to persuade and, and change the thinking pattern of the citizens, because one thing that they don't realize is in the long run, you take the first phase of that lawsuit in Dunn versus Dunn, the ADA claims, even during the settlement, just because they settled, they still paid, Alabama Department of Corrections had to pay $1.25 million in lawyer's fees at $195 per hour to the lawyers. That's just for settlement. Now, we're not talking about the second phase of it, which is the mental health. And they actually went to trial for a month and then decided they was going to uh, settle. So we're not talking just about $1.25 million. And I haven't found anything yet on the settlement price of the attorney fees on that yet. 
But, you know, it's interesting that the citizens and the taxpayers of the state of Alabama don't care where their money is going and that they're not actually getting what they're paying and investing in with their tax money. Uh, I'm glad you're sharing that information with us. We provide as much as we can on what we're talking about right now for our listeners to review on New Abolitionist Radio. Hey, Max. Um, I'd like to really get uh, back to uh, our mission on the last three weeks, too, and I know you've heard a little bit of it. So at some point, I'm going to want to hear your comments as well. Uh, is that cool? That's cool with me. Hey, Max, I uh, want to alert you. We have another phone call on the board. Uh, what was that, Scotty? I couldn't hear it. We have another phone call on the board. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's take another call and keep this conversation going. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Three, three, four. Hey, how you guys doing this evening? Peace. Uh, who, who's calling? Uh, this is uh, Jesse Smith calling from Alabama. Ah, peace and welcome, Jesse Smith. Uh, I saw earlier that you have an association with Brother Swift Justice, as a matter of fact. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I am... Uh, a one of the co-founders, new co-founders of Unheard Voices, uh, OCTJ, and uh, I'm definitely interested in in getting my hands w- or getting my feet wet. Uh, but before I get my feet wet, I got to make sure my mind is duly engaged, and so that's why I am trying to uh, get as much uh, information and knowledge uh, in this area as I can, so we can be effective when we begin to. Uh, you know, raise our voices. Great. Uh, what's your question or comment this evening? Well, you know, basically, I, I'm just calling, you know, from Alabama, just to uh, just to give the listeners a little context into why and, and why the prison systems are the way they are. Uh, I, you know, you never know how much you know about something until you ask yourself a question. And being in the military, it, it led me to. To think of the, the the situation in prisons when it comes to food, and, and I realized that when you can control the food, you can totally control the mindset, the mentality, the mental health of the people. Whether it be and and I don't mean to uh, insert the prison uh, population in the exact same category as animals, but I think there is value in the narrative that I'm trying or the picture that I'm trying to paint. Uh, And we will have uh, all of, they make sure the canines get their shots on time. They, any issue that comes about, they're they're rushing them. They're receiving the the top services and, and, and food and medical treatment that can be given to a canine. But when we look at these prison systems and we realize that Many of the prison systems are overcrowded. Many of them are underfunded. But if we take a look at the state of Alabama, and please interrupt me if I, if I go on too long, but if we take a look at the state of Alabama, I think if we ask a serious question and look at the landscape, prisoners in Alabama are making furniture. The inmates are the chefs. The inmates are doing the maintenance on the facilities. They're plumbers, electricians, welders, and carpenters. The inmates are making their own clothes. The inmates are fixing the state's vehicle fleet. So 
the question that we must ask, where is the money going? And so I think as we look at corruption and the level of corruption across the state of Alabama, we can, you know, kind of find a root cause as to why the prison systems are overcrowded, why they're functioning uh, in the manner in which they're functioning, and what steps should be taken to remedy those problems. And, and I think the steps are very clear. Well, that's, that's we what understand. this conversation is all about. I don't know if you're yeah. aware, but we've had a four-part series. The last three weeks, we had discussions with people who represented a variety of narratives that were vying for control, that being uh, prison slavery abolition, slavery mm -hmm. abolition, criminal justice reform, and uh, prison abolition. And we let those people talk and hear what they said and what they wanted to do and accomplish and stuff like that. For us, we're here as slavery abolitionists. We know things like the Alabama State Constitution has an exception clause allowing slavery to be legal in your state. We also know that Alabama used convict leasing all the way up to 1928 when it was forced, forced to stop using it. We know that 80% of the economy that came into Alabama was through convict leasing all the way up till 1928. So when you start looking at these legality loopholes, like an exception, and you start looking at the history of Alabama to exploit human bodies for profit, it's hard not to see a direct connection. You, you, you're absolutely right, and and that's the, I believe that's the reason I was trying to bring all of those skill sets and trades into the conversation to show that right here in 20, in the 21st century we have the state of Alabama that is clearly utilizing the practice of convict leasing. Yes, I believe uh, don't they flip up Alabama Alabama manufacturers. Hamburgers, I believe, from McDonald's. Don't they do something like that? Process hamburgers, also make clothing for places like McDonald's and Burger King. Victoria's Secret and Starbucks. There are so many uh, different organizations that benefit from the uh, prison, the, the slave labor. Let's call it what it is. And you know, you're right. The Alabama Constitution allows uh, uh, slave labor. There's an exception, but that's only based on the national constitution having that exact same exception. Yes, and we found that two dozen states have an, uh, a version of that exception clause. Colorado trying to remove theirs as we speak through Amendment A. So there's a lot of people coming together with the same idea that, hey, wait a minute, this ain't no mistake. This is a system working at full capacity, one of the greatest systems ever built by humankind, and it's called legalized slavery. <laughs> Hey, Max, I, I would like to uh, ask a question or, or interject something. You know, when we talk about pre-American Civil War slavery, and some people have asked the question, especially in the South, where at certain times the enslaved population outnumbered those who were enslaving them. And, and the question is posed, why didn't they rebel? Why, and we've even seen that come out through films like Django. Why, why didn't he cut, cut my uh, daddy's throat, you know, this old Joe and what have you? And so when, then when you look at the level of terrorism, and fear being instilled in this popular people being drawn and quartered, people being raped. Where is that coming from? 
Okay, I'm I'm sorry. That's my phone giving me some kind of flood warning or or something. My bad. I was thinking it was coming from the lines. So let me unmute everybody and let me continue the conversation. Um, but but I was asking, uh, let's put that in the modern context in the wake of the prison strike, which there could be prisoners still on strike right now, but the official end was September the 9th. Um, and you wonder why we didn't have mass participation in that. And so I'm asking the que- question of our modern victims of slavery, why wasn't there more um, rebellion? Um, in the form of the these strikes, in the very you know hunger strikes, sit-ins, work strikes, because you just describe how the prisoners run everything. Well, if everybody decided it's not going to work, then it it's not going to work. You know, it's not going to work. And so, is it a level of violence and intimidation uh, that the majority, or is there a, a lack of communication and ability to get all the um, 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 millions of victims of present-day slavery on the same page. Well, if I may, if I may uh, touch on that, Scotty, I'd like to do that, man, because I think it's a multiple things. One of them is a lack of communication. I mean, although we we do have tools to communicate amongst each other, but I think one of the biggest issues right now is, is kind of like what Jesse was actually touching on a while ago is the control factor that the prison systems in, in these different states are actually implementing onto the inmates through psychological uh, ways, such as, you know, allowing these individuals to uh, be so or so um, what's the, inclined to get, uh, get on drugs and uh and the incentives, the small incentives of these stores, canteens, they don't want to lose these things by participating, and they can't think of the bigger picture. Of course, you know we're dealing with a generation uh, that expects everything in the instant, and if they can't see direct results tomorrow behind a strike that only lasted for 24 hours, this is not going to last. And so, and a lot of these guys, man, in my own opinion, they're actually okay being where they're at, and. But there again, uh, many of them are very uneducated on what we're doing. But luckily, we're starting to see more and more of it over the news, especially here in Alabama. And I think it's starting to wake up some of these dudes. But whether or not they're willing to sacrifice canteens or a package uh, that that their family's going to have to buy them or, you know, just sacrifice some things that they hold dear to them, such as these stores and, and, and stuff, man. That's the sad part about it is, is these guys cannot let go of what's in front of them. There was a quote recently uh, that was stated by bro- Brother uh, Amaju Ajoba. Man, I'm messing up his name. But in any case, he had an uh, interview on with a brother that just got out of like 30 years in prison. And the man said, Uh, Max, you still there? Yeah, Max, you you with uh, mute on us. Can't hear you. Okay, Max dropped off, so he he will be uh, calling back in. Um, let me see. I think that is. Let me check the board. Okay. Um. Let's take this phone call as we wait on uh, Max. Max saying his phone died. Uh, get find the charger, bro. 
find a charger. Um, Jenna from Tennessee wants to call in, um, chime in on our dialogue tonight. Uh, Jenna, thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Greetings, Scotty. All the, uh, all the callers. Uh, special greetings to Swift Justice. He he added me on BTI community. Uh, much thanks for that. I had a question though. Uh, he was talking about people being comfortable where they're at. I mean, dealing with the circumstances that they have to deal with. I understand fully. But I have a, uh, my question is, is during a prison strike while I was sharing all of the information that I was receiving, I kept seeing uh, people posting pictures of, of prisoners just laid up with, uh, with big screen TVs and they was, they was really flossing and talking about everything that they can do while they're still in prison. And I want to know, is, is that one of the reasons that he believes that everybody's not so inclusive in these type of strikes and I mute myself. Thank you. You know, that those are partly reasons, you know, you taking your TVs and stuff like that. And, and you can even go in, in into it in depth with some of the states that are very lax on things such as, like I said, the drugs or the cell phones and stuff like that. You know, it, the mindset of a confined citizen is we don't want to rock the boat. We got these luxuries and they're not stepping down on us about this or that. And, and the way that the agent, DOC agencies look at these things, man, is okay, yeah, they got contraband in there, but uh, as long as we can control them and they stay in a, a stupor of a state of mind, then we got total control over them. You know, Jesse and I was just talking last night about the food issue that he brought up. Uh, and and he, he actually broke some things down to a point where I never really thought of food actually being a real, true, serious issue. But when he broke it down to me, man, he broke it down to me to the point where I was seeing the control factor coming from the agency side of the Department of Corrections to where they are actually feeding under the law requirement of calories and all this and that, or even the portions. And what does that cause the inmates to do? Well, that causes them to be hungry. And then it will cause them to start asking mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, aunt to send them money so that they can start spending it on canteens and stuff. And in many situations, especially here in Alabama, you know, they're not going to let you go back for doubles. A couple of years back, I also lost his life because of uh, and allegedly tried to double up in, in, in a line. Now, and they're willing to lose their life to keep an individual from doubling up in the line so to make them hungry and controllable to where they're going to spend money and whatnot. And right. these, these guys actually start taking a the, the privilege of ha having a canteen or these TVs or whatnot and do not want to lose that because it's pretty much in their eyesight all they have to do so they don't want to rock the boat in many instances and many issues, especially in the state of Alabama. That, um, I can speak with that. If, Swift, if I may... Because me and Max uh, earlier was having a conversation and, and contraband came up. And you mentioned that they're very lax on those type of rules at, at different facilities. And I would surmise to you from my earlier conversation with Matt is that a lot of contraband is being brought in by the prison guards. And so, you know, they're looking to make some tax-free money on the side, too. So, so you know, I think that's the reason why some of these facilities is lax. 
um, or breaking the allowing so-called rules to be broken is because hey, they're profiting from it. I mean, your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I agree with that too as well. Of course, you know, I, I mean, I'm going to be straight up. That's not the only way that uh, contraband's brought in. And, and and Jesse and I even touched on this last night as well, man. As long as we have uh, contact to the outside world, we're always going to be able to manipulate and get uh, what we want inside the prison system. But this is the thing. This is my, my issue when I'm looking at it from the inside out, man, is you know, and I, and I look at the drug issues, the drugs, and how easy it is to get these drugs, such as the Flocka and the Great Death. Um, why are these? Uh, why is there no incentive or any discipline really placed upon it in the state of Alabama, on to the point of trying to detour the convict or the confined citizens from actually doing this and losing their life? Well. Like I said, it's a control thing, man. And, of course, if you've seen the video, you see these guys are in a stupor. Literally. They're in a nod. They're not doing anything whatsoever, and they're controlled by this. Well, you know, you know, Swift, um, we're about to, um, we got about four minutes to our break. We got another call. Max is back as well. But that takes us full circle to what we were talking about before, the mental health treatment. Drug addiction is, is, is medical issue it's a health issue and a lot of times people use drugs because they're self-medicating to deal with any kind of psychological trauma emotional trauma and other trauma so we're full circle to the crew in inhumane you know uh um treatment that the courts have ruled that alabama is engaging in by denying this mental health treatment which is you know again the drug addiction and you're 100% right about that, Scotty. And, and if you break it down even farther and say, why are they doing this? You know, there's another aspect to this. Well, if you've got individuals inside the prison system who are strung out worse than they were before they came like to prison, then guess what? These guys are guaranteed to come back once they're released. What are they doing as far as trying to get the population inside the prison system and ADOC out, uh, down now? They're actually releasing nonviolent criminals, such as drug addiction, uh, drug addicts and things like that to the point of where they're actually being paroled out and they're high. They're walking out the gate high. Well, they know good and well once they get out there and they get on parole, well, they're coming right back. So they're not going to be losing these individuals. And we talked about this again last night. Why aren't they allowed to uh, get a parole to the guys who have murder cases and done this for 30, 40 years? Well, because there's been studies done left and right year after year that murder cases are less likely to return back to prison. And so we don't want to lose what we can get off of them, and we got to keep them as long as we can. But we know good and well that these nonviolent criminals with these drug addictions are going to come back. Uh, Max, if you want to take us to the break, uh, we'll go ahead and take it a couple of minutes early. And then on the other side, we have a call from uh, 646. All right. Uh, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back. Oh, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio, since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, 
Scotty, we have a call, you said? Yes, area code 646. Uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question or comment. Appreciate it, and, and salute to y'all. Pardon if um, the volume is problematic, but I'm going to keep it concise. I know that y'all are up against it um, with the time. I appreciate y'all keeping the line open. The question is um, for Swift Justice, and I appreciate your just clarifying the various issues that you have thus far. The My, my first question is about the, the flock and uh, you mentioned gray death and these various substances, you know, that that we know. Uh, and I'm, I find myself looking back at, at some of the Frederick Douglass writings about how it was, you know, all but required of, of the enslaved in his experience to, during the, the holidays, make sure to, to, to get as drunk as possible, as intoxicated as possible, and those who were enslaved were were resented if they didn't do so. So we're looking at, you know, a long continuum of this kind of behavior. And I'm just wondering if you have noticed what others have cited of, you know, these uh, individuals that are in there, you know, uh, the, the overseers, et cetera, you know, getting suddenly sick um, from, you know, gracing a glove, for example, that might have made contact with a substance or these kinds of things. Like, given that they're, you know, from what you're saying, allowing such widespread uh, usage of these substances, have you noticed um, similar uh, scares uh, where you are or, or uh, elsewhere in Alabama where they're claiming that, um, you know, these, these uh, prison overseers are, are suddenly just, you know, getting sick or, or um, in danger of ODing from substances that others are using. Uh, correct me, correct me if I'm I'm wrong about the question, but your question because I'm I'm kind of getting a uh, bad reception here. But I, I believe the question was, am I witnessing uh, OD and, and stuff inside the prison system dealing with the uh, flocker and the great death? Is that correct? Not not exactly. More more to the point, are you are you witnessing or being told by administration that there are scares? Of that happening to those who aren't partaking of the substances intentionally, to you know the, the so to speak bystanders that are you know allowing for this to happen, as has been happening in other states throughout the country. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, now that's that's a funny uh, funny thing that you asked something like that. Now we don't hear that whatsoever in Alabama. Very rare will you even hear a report of an overdose inside of the Department of Corrections in Alabama. And, and to be honest with you, uh, the way they actually cover that up here in Alabama, as far as the guys who are actually dying behind it, is these deaths are being recorded as natural causes and not being reported as an overdose whatsoever. So Alabama is really in, in, in a standpoint of denial that there is any form of or any problem whatsoever with these drugs inside the prison system so there's been no scare whatsoever that I've heard of in Alabama uh, I know I did I heard about it in the uh, other two states I think one was uh, Pennsylvania and I, I can't remember where the other one was it's both in the same day but nothing like that whatsoever in Alabama
appreciate that response, and, and that's uh, somehow not surprising that they would be so selective as that in their treatment of this, you know, real problem that can be overblown for specific purposes. All right, and and you got to look at Alabama. Alabama has a whole lot of pressure on them from all different uh, standpoints, all the way from the overcrowding to the mental health, the uh, Disability Act, which is the ADA, uh, and the conditions um, of the prisons themselves, as well as the understaffing, as well as being the most violent in the, in the United States of America, along with the highest suicide rate of America as far as the prison system. So they're not really wanting to add on to any other uh, issues that they can actually cover up. Alabama is really the ticking time bomb of the United States of America right now as far as the prison system itself. All right, thanks, Tag, for uh, your questions. Uh, Max, um, if you want to move into some of the stuff that you wanted to talk about, uh, especially this uh, confusion and what have you concerning these different labels of different movements and what we covered in the uh, series thus far. I'm not sure if Max is still on the board. Okay. Scotty, while you while you try to find Max, can I allow me to mention something too that that you know coincides with exactly what we were talking about a while ago on the mental health stuff? But did you know that in the state of Alabama that Alabama actually closed four of six mental health hospitals in Alabama, and that Alabama's uh, prisons are are now pretty much the new mental health facilities? Right. Um. Let me see. Uh, uh tribal. I see Max's wife is on the board, or at least her profile's on the board. I don't know if they're in the same location, but we don't have uh, Max on the board, so I'm going to pull up his, his planning schedule uh, to get through. I'm here, Scotty. Oh, okay. All right, but Max. But I can't hear nothing I can't hear nothing over that head. Yeah, that's coming off of, of um, Swift Justice line, so if you want to close uh, out our segment. Can you Yeah. Wow, man, <laughs> that was loud. So yeah, my, you know, I don't have a pair of earphones. When my, I got my cat just a couple of weeks ago, the first thing he did was ruin my expensive earphone. So I'm using my phone and it died and I had to call back in on Tribal's phone. So pardon me on that. Anyway, if it's at all possible, uh, I would like to really get back to the topic that we were here to talk about today. And we spent three weeks preparing for. Uh, I know all of these things are important, but as always, we got so much to say and so little time. So if it's, if it's possible, maybe we get somebody to comment on what they heard over the past three weeks in the conversations about controlling narratives during the prison strike 2018. Um, no? We got Otis on the board. Okay. Well, Max, uh, good evening, gentlemen. I, I didn't want to w hold up a lot of time, but bringing it back to the subject you were talking about, I did tag you the other night on an interesting conversation, an interview of uh, uh, Amante Sawari, who is with uh, JLS. So I think that's part of what you're talking about. She got a chance to explain what the prison strike was all about, what went into helping coordinate it, and what they plan to do in the future. So I think that's what you're touching on. I'll mute myself. 
Thanks, Otis. But actually, not really. Uh, When she came on uh, on Black Talk Radio Network just last week, I had the opportunity, thanks to you, to uh, say hi and thanks to her and ask her a question. But primarily what this whole series has been about is trying to find out who's really, who has the right narrative. Because some of these narratives are not compatible. Over the past three weeks, there's a couple of things I learned. One of them is when I started with saying, okay, these are the four different narratives vying for control, really it fell down to two categories. The two categories being uh, one side, which was prison abolition and criminal justice reform. At no time did they really mention that they saw this as a crime against humanity that needed to be treated as such. More or less, especially in the last one with Leron Barton, it was something that we could change over time and because of mistakes. And then on the other side, where you have prison slavery abolitionists and slavery abolitionists, there's really no difference. They believe the same thing. They want the same thing. The only thing different is just semantics. And that's because of the times. They want the focus on the prisoners because they're the ones out there risking their lives to get these things done. They know slavery goes beyond the prison walls and stuff like that. So there's really no issue. It was just those two competing narratives. And those are dangerous competing narratives because one is calling the other one a liar. If you're saying it's a mistake, nobody meant to do it like this, it just happened this way, we can fix it over time, and the person right across from you is going, no, this is a crime against humanity being done on purpose. It's being done legal, the courts made it happen, it's in the Constitution, and we're charging crimes against humanity. Then basically you're saying that one of them is a liar. Yeah, even if you take the uh, use the language of this is a mistake and and fix it, you know the historical record doesn't show that the Thirteenth Amendment and the continuation of slavery is a mistake. It, it's in the historical record. We were just talking about Lincoln's letters to the governor, so this was all well planned and plotted out. So it's not a mistake. But how do you fix fix it? You know, well, if we're talking about slavery, then you abolish slavery. It's as simple as that. I don't, I don't see why it takes a, um, you know, PhD to understand that. You know, I remember the first of the series of interviews which we had with Michael Vincent and also Mama Condi, and it was they were representing the prison abolitionist perspective and telling us what the goals were, what the main priorities were. And I was appreciative of Mama Condi's open-mindedness at the time. She even at one point said, I need to come on more often. I've just been listening to you guys since I found about it through the prison, uh, Millions for Prisoners movement. And she said that she was proud of what we're doing and she would rather listen to more. But I think our Brother Vincent was a little bit combative. I don't know if he felt like maybe we were attacking him or trying to you know, demean his efforts. And by no means are we doing that. People are doing good work out there. Just because they don't have all the pieces to the puzzle don't mean that they haven't been doing good work. But once the information is there, and you know it's clear and cut, and you can understand it, just like any fifth grader can, you should adopt it into your philosophies. I mean, why stand against the truth? I don't, I don't understand that type of stubbornness. So, you know, I, I was appreciative of both of their input. And the other thing that I noticed during that first conversation was there was no real main goal that could be pointed out. There was also no real process or plan that laid out step-by-step step how things can be accomplished. What do you think about that, Scotty? Well, I just echo echo your comments, man. You know, I just try to keep a laser focus, man. Um, 
we live in a society that has these rules and regulations and and nobody's realistically laying out a plan for an armed revolution or or you know anything like that um or to mount a second civil war there there's really no credible uh movements like that there's a lot of talk about it so we had to work within the framework that that we have and that is through the courts litigating it through the courts that's through the legislative branch whether it's on the state level but ultimately the federal level and and so um again you have to go to the top you have to go to the source the origin you know of the diseases that you know we're talking dealing with a bunch of the symptoms of a disease well what's the disease well the 13th amendment makes it clear it's slavery and involuntary servitude and it is managed through the prisons and labeling people um felons and what have you which is another i guess metaphor for slave um but we do have some people who did uh want to chime back in um to answer your question um, I think it was okay. um, 646 tag again uh, first. Then we have um, 334, um, which might be Swift again. And then we have Otis. So uh, go ahead, tag. Yeah, right quick. So, you know, and, and pardon if I was diverging from the topic before. I, I, I thought we were kind of still just uh, in the pre-discussion to it. But, I mean, it, it's been – the series, I think, has been very instructive and I agree that, well, from, from what I hear, it sounds like we're in agreement that there was more overlap of kind of conceptual frameworks than there was uh, any, you know, discrepancy. But then, of course, the question of semantics comes up, and uh, I agree that that's critical to the discussion because then that feeds into strategies and tactics. And so um, just to highlight one or two points that I noticed from the discussions as it relates to semantics, it seemed like most recently, I, I think the brother's name is Laurent, who, um, you know, uh, the, the writer who was on discussing reform, it seemed that he was more or less aligned with questions of abolitionism. But when the question of abolishing prison slavery in totality arose, it seemed like those semantic difficulties really made it um, a problem to come to an accord there. I think in part because if you say we should abolish prison slavery, in some ways that equates to we should abolish these prisons because as they're currently formulated, it, these prisons represent prison slavery and are up under prison slavery. And so uh, just to my ear, it sounded like that was perhaps the difficulty that the brother was having. I well, well, Tag, if I if I may interject. Now, I did lay it out plain, though, for him. And I cited the Agreed. 13th Amendment. And so when I said, should we be punishing people with slavery and involuntary servitude? And he never really answered the question. He said that when people commit crime, they should be punished. He, he kept going to the crime and punishment argument that you typically hear from hardliners, you know? Um, so the difficulty was, okay, he not really, in my opinion, because I'm assuming that everybody, well, not everybody, but most reasonable people view slavery as immoral and evil. I mean, if you take that view, which he does of the past, pre-American Civil War slavery, well, then 
you know, we're just in a different time period, but it's the same old evil. Yes, we agree that there should be, well, I try to get them to, how about instead of just calling it punishment and, and looking to get retribution or vengeance on people, that we work towards rehabilitation, okay, and, and redemption. And what for those who have violated, you know, other human beings and, and what have you. But but again, the bulk of the prisoners are not in there for rape, murder, or something. It's nonviolent drug crimes or other, you know, prostitution, just nonviolent stuff involved. And so if that's the majority, do you think slavery should be in the Constitution as punishment for crime? And, and he kept saying that. If somebody commit crime, I think they ought to be punished. So I, I don't know if there's a mental block or if my communication skills, you know, I just wasn't speaking his language. I don't know what it was, Tag. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll hold it. Oh, I was just saying you got a lot of good points that you mentioned about that. I'm glad that you brought them up. Right, right. You know, and so I'll, I'll hold off on, on other comments because I, I don't want to close it up, but I'll just say I, I agree with you, and I think that um, if, if pressed, I would say that it's probably that um, it was a language question and that it is tied to what y'all often point toward, this question of cognitive dissonance. I, I think that um, in all instances, uh, heads were a part of a discourse that, you know, this particular platform is very regularly addressing and that leads to a certain type of language and you know that kind of language may take a second to acclimate to to you know uh, and therefore I think it was just a question of well there needs to be some sort of punishment currently prison represents prison slavery without prison slavery i.e. prison what would we have you know so I don't think that you are being unclear. I, I just think that it's a testament to just how uh, just how much film there is around the language of slavery and of imprisonment, and, and punishment is just roped into that, and that's what we need to constantly be uh, pushing back against and clarifying, as, as is done on New Abolitionist Radio on the regular. All right. Thanks, thanks brother. Thanks, Tag. Um, let's go to 334. I'm not sure if that's Swift or what. What's what's his uh, co-founder's name? I'm, I'm sorry, but three three four. Your mic is open. It's, 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 it's me again. Again. Okay, go ahead, Swift. Listen, you know, I think it. it, it I think it's it's pretty much simple things, Max. On, on that right there, I think a lot of people have yet grasped the fact that. Uh, we could say it's slavery. A lot of people, I think, are, are really reluctant on saying it's slavery. And they're so comfortable saying mass incarceration and stuff like that. I mean, of course, you remember when I, when I did the interview with Al Jazeera. Um, you know, I actually was asked, you know, what do I think the most important um, aspect of the prison strike was? And I said, uh, I, I, me, myself, is a, uh, of course, I made the mistake, and I said abolishing the 13th Amendment. But, I, but I, my whole thing was to abolish the exception clause. That is the root of the problem to every last one of these different, I'm going to call them denominations of the prison strike or the movement. Um, that's, that's the root of the cause. That is the Jesus Christ of this movement. And people have yet to come to the exception that, hey, man, that's actually what the problem is. It, it, it is the root of why these things are going on. And, you know, and, and now you take Alabama, for instance. I don't even believe that they 
that the true citizens realize, hey, the actual implementation of the slavery aspect of using in inmates or convicts or however you want to call it, I call them slaves, actually is robbing you from a job. So I don't, I, you know, people aren't ready. I don't think that many people are as ready to accept the fact that slavery does exist and are, allow, are, are really allowing that word to even go over their mouth or, or come off their tongue to say that. And I also believe that there might be a lot of groups out there that's really, you know, focusing on, hey, we want our message to be in the spotlight and, and let that message only be in the spotlight. You know, and that's something that we all got to get past is, you know, hey, we got to find the root cause and screw what organization is in the spotlight. I mean, it doesn't matter as long as we're giving the right message out for these, for legislation and Congress to actually take hold of and take acknowledgement of. Because the day that we are get the point across to one of these legislatures or the Senate or even a governor and say, hey, that slavery is existing, and that's what I interpret the 13th Amendment to actually say in whatever constitution, state constitution clause it's in or amendment it's in, that's what it says. And that's the day we're really going to make uh, progress is when they start accepting, hey, slavery exists. All right. Thank you, uh, Indeed, brother, Swift. If you can mute yourself while we uh, reply. Awesome. Uh, you were brilliant on your reply to that question on Al Jazeera, uh, no doubt about it. And it was just small grammatical error. Don't worry about you know that at all uh, yeah, you're oh. talking about brother Leron Barton and he is a representative for criminal justice reform who has written extensively on things like mass incarceration just today he published a brand new article called allyship is a verb and you can check that out Scotty you was going to say something yeah um but now he repeated on that broadcast that he learned from me, he states this on the broadcast, that we're dealing with 21st century slavery and involuntary servitude. So, again, you know, it, I, I'm just going to chalk it up to confusion. But listen, uh, OLG, did you want to comment again, Otis? Um, and then we're going to go to 919. Let's try and keep everything in, in uh, the calls in order. Otis, did you, did you have a comment? Okay, 919, uh, looks like calling from my home state of North Carolina. Uh, give us your name, go ahead with your question and comment. That might be Good Crystal. afternoon. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, Crystal. Uh, welcome hey, welcome hey. back to New Abolitionist Radio. Crystal um, Roundtree. <laughs> it's good to be back on New Abolitionist Ra Radio, of course. Good good evening, everyone, Max and Scotty. Um so, yes, I just wanted to, you know, uh, call in and, and certainly join in on the conversation that we're having here this evening. Um, and I also brought um, uh, Comrade S.J. Uh, with me. He's on the line as well. All right. Peace and welcome, brother. All right. Yes. So, um, as you know, he's he's down there, certainly, uh, you know, one of the organizers of Jailhouse Warrior Speak in South Carolina. And so I just wanted to... Um, not only send greetings to uh, everyone this evening, but to uh, participate in the call. And so, I'll actually turn it over to SJ if you if you've got something you want to add to the conversation at this point. Can, can, can I add, do a halfway decent introduction to you two? Sure. Word uh, on the line right now is SJ and Crystal Roundtree. Crystal Roundtree is one of the leading figures of the uh, Millions for Prisoners Human Rights. Uh, uh, organization, and she helped to basically really form the uh, 
strike that we did in 2017, as well as the March on Washington, a lot of the things that you see going on right now can be pointed directly to her direct action. So Brother SG, representing the jailhouse lawyers speak, are the people who organized the 2018 prison strike and reached out to everybody and kept things going as they wanted to go, representing the brothers and sisters on the inside. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Brother SJ, what do you have to say? Well, first of all, thank you. Thank Brother Scotty over there. Uh, I just want to thank y'all, man, for y'all continuous support, uh, particularly to the brothers and sisters behind the wall. Uh, man, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's been a roller coaster ride, and as y'all know it's continuing on. You know, uh, I, I was listening uh, to a few things earlier, and um, I just have to always point out uh, one of the things is uh, the one of the things is that the most important thing is when you're dealing with the uh, 2018 prison strike, and uh, one of the things we've been stressing over and over and over, trying to remind people that this is definitely you know issues that we're trying to address, the issues that are uh, human rights violations, issues um, that we consider against uh, human decency, you know. Um, and, and it was a list of 10 demands that was laid out, you know, um, all the way from uh, immediate confinement conditions, um, the rehabilitation treatment, all the way down to ending prison slavery. Um, all of these are issues that we consider that are immediate and very pressing issues, all the way down to the simple voting, you know, the voting rights of uh, current prisoners and ex-prisoners. Um, and um, these, these these are just things that we felt that we can agree on, you know, things that we can push forward. And um, I know it brought a lot of different voices in, you know, solidarity with all the different voices that came from so Amen. many different angles. Uh, we do know that it was some people trying to control the narrative. Um, that was definitely spotted, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that everyone knows you look back at those 10 demands, you got to know what this here represented. Um, and back to the means for prisoners, we know what the means for prisoners are represented. Uh, we've always said that it's a dismantling process. And um, on top of that platform is the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. So um, none of that has changed, you know. Uh, none of that has changed. We got a few more tactics that's on the table right now, and we're going to keep on pushing forward. But I just want to get on here personally tonight and, man, just continue to think the uh, new abolitionist movement for your continuous support of the prison movement. You know, I, I just got to put that out there. Thank you, brother. You guys that are risking your lives and everything on top of that, man. We're just trying to stay on point with you, you know what I mean, and do whatever we can to support you. So when you hear what's going on here today, as I said, these are two sources. Like, they're right there at the heart of everything. And this is what they're saying they're about right there. So, yeah, there's other narratives vying for control. But we got to remember this, like you just said, people came across boundaries to make this happen. You know, the prison abolitionists joined up with the reformers, and the reformers joined up with the slavery abolitionists. It was beautiful to see, right? That's right. That's right. That's right, brother. It was a beautiful thing, man. It was a beautiful thing, you know? And, uh, and, and you know, we just hope this does not stop. You know, I think that uh, with all things, it's a process. You know, it's um, I, I think all movements are progressive in nature. You know, you either you're either climbing or you're declining, one or the other. And I think that we are definitely climbing. I don't think we're um, um, any making any. We're not taking any steps backwards. We're definitely not declining. You know. And, and I'm just hoping that it continues on, you know, and that we find more that are adding on. And not only that, just for, you know, uh, for the prisoners, particularly inside this nation. You know, we come from a, uh, I always remind people that you have a diversity of thoughts back here in the prisons, you know. 
Uh, we come from different movements, from different networks inside the prisons. And uh, one of the things, you know, I think I was listening a little bit earlier and I was hearing a little conversation about maybe why prisoners aren't standing up, you know. And I have to remind people sometimes, you know, that even during uh, before this particular form of slavery that take, that's taking place today, uh, when our ancestors, particularly in the New African community, was uh, when it was a race-based slavery solely, we found that a lot of those particular, those people that was enslaved at that time period, it's only a minority that was actually standing up. So usually it's always the minority that's always leading the way and that eventually leads to the changes that needs to take place. You know, we shouldn't look for everybody to take, you know, to jump, jump charge. It's the few. And I always tell people, don't lose faith in the few, you know, because it's the few that's going to rock the world. Amen to that, man. I, I firmly believe that. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this because I know how few of us there are. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very that's very well put. Um, and even like um, some things I learned from some former members. Well, they still Panther alumni, but elders. When you know, I listen to them talk about successful revolutions around the world, uh, like Cuba, and, and it was always a small minority. Um, the majority of the population, and even when you look at pre-American Civil War slavery, the abolitionists were a minority. So, well put, uh, brother. Uh, did Max drop off again? Max is having uh, issues. No, I'm here, brother. I'm, oh, okay. I'm here. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, Max, real quick. Before I'm sorry. Real quick before we take our last break. Uh, Otis has been waiting patiently to, to get in. So do you want to take the break first, then come to Otis, and then hit our last segments? Or how do you want to handle yes, it? Yes, let's, let's take the break. Uh, uh, take a call from Otis and any final comments quickly, and then do our final segments. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network, and we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, let's go ahead with Otis. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. I just wanted to amplify what Swift Justice was saying. It, there are four or five different narratives going on, but we all keep talking about the 13th Amendment. If you're going to say what the 13th Amendment is about, actually, in plain words, it's about what's acceptable as punishment once you go to jail. The first five words tell you neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Except, then 14 other words, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Those words tell you that once you have been convicted in this country, are several things that most people aren't paying attention to. You actually have no more constitutional rights. All of this idea about going to court and stuff like that is actually saying what are the people who have constitutional rights are doing to you. So when we when people talk about trying to reform the prison system and all of that, you cannot conform reform a system that is legal. So regardless of what you say, whether you believe uh, getting rid of the exceptional clause matters or not, nothing you can do 
will ever be legal in this country until you wipe out the 14 words, except as punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. Because you have been duly convicted, slavery and involuntary servitude is an acceptable punishment. So I've been putting this out to people. As a matter of fact, if you listen as hard as it may be, if you go back and listen to the speech that the current attorney general gave on Constitution Day, uh, two days ago, Monday. If you listen to him, you will understand exactly what I'm saying to you. This Constitution is the basis for all laws. Exactly. If those, uh, 14, yes, if those 14 words were not in there, it would be illegal to use slavery or involuntary service. Yeah, even so with really, the even with the reformists, and we just pressed for time, Otis, I don't mean to interrupt yes, you, but that's, even... That's all I'm saying. E- even, it must go. Even with the reform, the reform, Okay, the reform comes after you abolish slavery, which is what you're what you're saying. That's when you you put in the the reforms, right, right. But one thing uh, that you said, and I talked about this on BTR News, and I know you missed the uh, last segment, but I was saying when you mentioned that going through the courts and if if the prisoners have any rights or not. Yesterday, I was talking about it represents a ball of confusion because, again, taking it back to that Alabama lawsuit and finding them in, uh, uh, holding them in contempt of court for not hiring extra mental health workers because the courts rule, well, you violate, you're violating their Eighth Amendment rights, which is against cruel and unusual punishment. So the court is basically saying that these prisoners do have some constitutional rights. But then I'm saying that the U.S. government is a ball of confusion because in one court case, you're saying they have constitutional rights, but then in another court case, you're saying they're slaves. What are we dealing with? What is their status? And, it, and we do have to press to get an answer to that question from these, exactly, law, from these lawmakers. Are these citizens or are they slaves or are they some kind of citizen-slave hybrid? How do they have Eighth Amendment constitutional rights, but then not have voting rights? And not well, have quickly, it. Yeah. Scotty, yeah. That's what I was saying to you. They actually, what the 13th does, it makes it legal to use slavery and involuntary servitude. That's why right. it must go. So you basically made my point. Right. You do have rights, but once you're duly convicted, it is acceptable to use slavery and involuntary servitude. Right. Right. And all of the experts are missing that. Right. It, it, those 14 words must go. All right. Thank you, Otis. Um, Real quick, uh, Swift Justice, did you want to chime back in? Yeah, man, I'm gonna, I'm fixing to go ahead and drop off this call, Scotty T and Max. But I, I just wanted to say before I did, SJ, Crystal, all the brothers down here in, in Alabama, man, that's in this movement, man, we salute y'all. And SJ, you, I couldn't have said it no better. I'm sure Kinetic couldn't have said it no better, man. And what y'all are doing. I salute you from the bottom of my heart, man, and I appreciate y'all. I appreciate y'all putting the platform out there the way you just did and how you've done it. And we could nobody could have done it any better, no matter where they was at. And nonetheless, you said everything that I wanted to say, but I just couldn't put it in those beautiful words. And I appreciate you, uh, Scotty and Max, man, what y'all doing as well. And I got a lot of love for y'all, man, but I'm going to leave with that, man. Y'all peace, and I'll get with y'all again. All right, brother. Stay, brother, stay safe. Okay, um, Max, let's give Crystal yeah. and um, 
our uh, abolitionist comrade an opportunity to leave us with some fine some final words we're just kind of pressed for time we do got another program coming up and uh i wish we had more time uh with them but let's get them out of uh, uh, you know allot them some time to make some final comments all right uh crystal all right um well um you know i just want to you know uh, you know uh, certainly uh, thank you all of course for for having this platform this consistent platform delivering a consistent message to the importance of 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 you know abolition and of course the 13th amendment which is the main focus of the means for prisoners human rights always has been always will be um, and so I just encourage the, the listeners to get on board with the Men for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. Stay tuned in to what the prisoners and the people on the inside are actually saying, um, because you know they, they not only do they have uh, do they see the issues up close firsthand, but they also have have solutions that I think uh, we sh we should be taking their lead from. So I'll leave with that. And SJ. Well, I, I just want to uh, make sure that I'm saying on behalf of. Uh, jailhouse lawyer speak uh, once again we salute you all um, the new abolitionist movement period all the new abolitionists around the globe right now you know um, salute um, and I, I just want to let you know that we are uh, right now like I said earlier uh, strategizing on uh, what the next move should be we have not released any type of official uh, press statement at the moment and the reason why is because we're still gathering a lot of information y'all know it's been a lot of uh, repercussions behind this particular national strike that took place. Um, a lot of brothers and sisters offline at the particular moment. Um, the mail is not coming through to be able to communicate what is actually taking place in some spots around the country. And uh, for some of us, we do have a, a slight democratic process where we do try to get um, certain key members' opinions and thoughts on, you know, what we should be doing next. We do have some ideas, I'm sure. I, um, I appreciate you all putting the, uh, the uh, prisoners-led uh, right-to-vote movement message out there. We definitely want people to get involved with that. We're looking for some key members. Uh, we're also looking for some members to be setting on the uh, Central Committee for the Ministry of Prisoners Human Rights Movement. We need to be doing some planning for 2019 and 2020. As y'all know already, we're trying to take this uh, – um, this uh, uh, 13th Amendment, particularly the legalization of slavery in America to the international community, this is still forefront issue for us. And um, that's all I wanted to add. Once again, salute. Moja Huba, one love. One love, family, indeed. Man. One love, I'm proud peace. to know you uh, both and to have been fighting by your side now for a number of years. Uh, again, you know, these are the source, the people that are right there at the heart of it, and they know what they're talking about, and they know what they're fighting for. You know what I mean? And I think that's what we found out during this past three weeks. In the first one, with prison abolition, their focus is on abolishing prisons. They think that'll solve the problem. And I want to make a reminder that uh, Angela Davis, who is credited with starting that movement, is quoted as saying, first of all, I never said that we should just shut down all prisons. I also think that they lack any kind of cohesive plan or primary goals. Uh, I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just saying what I, I saw, you know, uh, from that uh, exposure. Then um, when Lee Wood came on. Yeah. Yeah, Scotty? Go ahead, man, Lee Wood. That's the man yeah, that made me an abolitionist today. Right, right, exactly. He's the reason Scotty Reed's an abolitionist. He's relatively known as the father of prison slavery abolition. And he wrote the book on it back in the 70s. He's the man who whispered into... Angela Davis's ear about the 13th Amendment. 
so you know when he told us that he was like like these the sister brother just said when Lee Woods told us that he was proud of us and if we he had any advice that we he could offer to us it would be to have him on the program more often that was a very proud moment for me you know what I mean like I, I really uh, felt good about that because we are trying to do something right and this brother. Uh, said it clear. And I don't think there's any difference between prison slavery abolition and slavery abolition. It's the same damn fight. As I said earlier, it's just we're using this time to focus on the people whose lives are on the line right now. And there's no reason why we should. And then the final one, which was Brother Leron Barton and criminal justice reform, I think that was a really good example where you could see which, or hear with your own ears a person going through cognitive dissonance. And to his credit, in his credit, he did admit to that. He admitted that yeah, I'm still, that. I'm working my way towards slavery abolitionists. He just, he, so at yeah. least he was honest in that regard about it. And he was open-minded. He was very open-minded. And I was so appreciative of that. But nonetheless, cognitive dissonance is real. We all tend to go through it through our first exposure to this idea because, you know, the ideas that you already have in your head have to be replaced. They don't get mixed with. You don't go from, oh, this is just a mistake to, damn it, this is a crime against humanity without getting rid of some preconceived notions. You know what I mean? And we and people go through that process. And I saw him going through it. Like when I pointed out about does he agree that what they're doing with prisoners in Vermont, sending them to Michigan in prison, uh, in Mississippi, private prisons, is, is human trafficking and a crime against humanity, he was in full agreement. But it's the same people signing the paychecks in all of this system. It's the U.S. government that controls all of that. So if one part of what they're doing in the system is a crime against humanity, the whole thing is a crime against humanity. So that, you know, I, it was all educational for me. I was, I came into it with an open mind. I wanted to hear what people had to say. And at the end of the day, I found out that it just confirmed what we already believed. And hopefully one day we can all get on the same page. Scotty? Yeah, I, I just want to echo some of the things that Crystal said about uh, prisoners on the inside. You know, I was discussing um, the prison strike yesterday on BTR News. And one of the things I mentioned, I, I was giving a shout out to the Free Alabama Movement. And when she talked about they have solutions, and I mentioned the fact that they wrote some legislation. You know, and just how, how long, you know, that we've had contact with those guys uh, calling in, you know, uh, uh, in the early days, you know, for a couple of years now. And but those solutions that they implemented and then it's demonstrated again that they understand perfectly uh, uh, um, what's going on and what what the legislative solutions are. And, and like uh, SJ was saying, it all comes down to human rights. You know, and taking it to the international court, but but just to let him know, in case he doesn't know, it's been in the international um, arena. So I think there's some fertile ground there um, that you will find um, as we continue to push it into the international arena. Uh, the prison strike garnered more international press than it did American-based press, U.S.-based press. You know, want to make that that distinction. So there, you know, internationally, Venezuela. About three or four years ago, in a, a United Nations peer review process, I brought on the field Juan Gaza out of Greenville, South Carolina. She run the Malcolm X Center, and you know she brought to my attention that hey, they called the United States out in this 
in this process at the UN for practicing slavery and saying they never abolished it and pointing to the 13th Amendment as well as raising the issue of, of you know, the agricultural immigrants who are basically your modern-day sharecroppers and what what have you. So, so there's been a number of countries that have recognized that this is prison slavery. And, and so, you know, again, human rights, this is a human rights issue. Crime against humanity. Slavery is a crime against humanity. So they laid it out in their 10 demands, you know, the, the reform. But it starts with abolishing slavery. Then you restore all these rights, you meet these needs, and, and what have you. Max? You know what's a beautiful thing, Scotty? That was uh, being able to facilitate that thank you from swift justice to Crystal Roundtree and Brother S.J. That was a, uh, a beautiful thing. That I'm happy to have been uh, a part of it because I know he meant every word that he says, just like I do. I'm so appreciative of both of them and all the people that are involved in it. And I know I rag on different uh, ideologies and things like that, but I'm also proud that you managed to step over those boundaries and come together for a national prison work strike. It's not the first time we've seen that, and we're going to keep seeing it happening more and more. We may never get on the same page, maybe ever, but we're going to keep fighting this thing together, whether we like it or not. Um, right, Scotty. Um, Max, I got the writer pulled up if you want to ready the abolitionists in profile. Okay, uh, no problem at all. What we're going to do is go into our next and final segments, uh, which will be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, our abolitionist in profile, and then our final comments for the evening. So, Scotty, starting with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Scotty? Our rider is Timothy, Timmy Duke, and this comes to you from law.u. Michigan.edu. So it's coming from the uh, University of Michigan Law School. Uh, Timmy Duke in the National Registry of Exonerations. On July 18th, 1991, 24-year-old Timmy Duke was indicted by a Dallas County, Texas grand jury on charges of burglarizing a home in Irving, Texas, three weeks earlier on June the 26th. The owner of the home that was broken into told police that she came home at 1.30 p.m., saw a strange car in her driveway that drove off as she approached. She noted the license plate and called police. Police traced the license plate to Duke's brother, who reported that Timmy Dukes was driving the car. At the time, he was indicted for burglary. Duke was already in custody on the charge of stealing the car in Louisville, Texas, 20 miles away, way from Irving, on the same day and at the same time of the burglary. Lewis authorities reported that Duke um, Louisville authorities reported that Duke was arrested for the car theft at 2 p.m. on that day. When Duke was charged with the burglary, he told his defense lawyer that he did not commit the burglary because he was already in custody on the car theft charge. In October 1991, Duke went to trial in Denton County Criminal District Court on the car theft charges. Uh, the prosecution's chief witness was Jesse Harris, the owner of Jesse's Auto Sales, who testified that Duke drove a Renault off the lot at about noon on June 26, 1991. Harris said that he began looking for the car at about 1.30 p.m. He spotted Duke driving it. Harris said he followed the car and kept it under surveillance until police were arrived and arrested Duke. The arrest report said Duke was taken into custody at 2 p.m. On, on uh, October the 24th, 1991, a jury convicted Duke of uh, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison. 80 years in prison. 
for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. On May 1st, 1992, Duke pled guilty in Dallas County Criminal District Court to the burglary charge and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The sentence was to be served concurrently with the 80-year term imposed in Denton County. Man, it's a lot here, Max. Uh, Harris said... Uh, yeah, okay. So, in November, Duke, acting without a lawyer, filed a state law petition for a writ of habeas corpus. He claimed that his defense lawyer in the burglary case had ignored his claim that he was already in custody in Denton County. Duke claimed that the license plate that was used to link him to the crime had been stolen prior to the burglary. He said he pled guilty because his defense lawyer told him he would get a longer sentence if he went to trial and was convicted. And if he pled guilty, his sentence would be concurrent with the sentence in the car theft case. The Dallas County District Attorney Office opposed the writ without doing any investigation. Duke's defense lawyer denied that he failed to investigate Duke's assertion of innocence. The trial court recommended that the writ be, de be denied. Uh, he su subsequently filed three more habeas petitions, all of which were denied uh, through uh, 2012, 2013, and 2016. Um, in 2017, he contacted da Dallas County Conviction Integrity Unit, uh, which I believe was uh, set up by this pros uh, former DA down there who's no longer with us, died from cancer or something, but he implemented that, this black dude. Um, but the Innocence Project of Texas and requesting help on this case, a joint reinvestigation showed the owner of the car lot said he had Duke under surveillance in the Renault at the same time that the burglary occur uh, occurred. Um, so in 2018, the trial court recommended the writ be granted and he was released from prison. He was granted parole on the unauthorized use of motor vehicle conviction and was granted bond on the burglary charge. Uh, on June 27, 2018, the Court of Criminal Appeals granted the writ and vacated Duke's burglary conviction. On July 30th, 2018, the prosecution dismissed the charge. He was ineligible for compensation for his wrongful burglary conviction because the time he spent in prison was for the unauthorized motor vehicle theft conviction. So New Abolitionist Radio welcomes Timmy Duke to freedom. Welcome to freedom, brother. Damn. The crime happened while he was in jail, and for 30 years nobody ever did anything about it. Isn't that something? Happens a lot. We've wow. read a lot of those type of uh, cases. 80 years for uh, burglary. <laughs> All right, well, let me get on to our uh, abolitionist in profile. Tonight, our abolitionist in profile is David Walker, 1796 to 1830, author of David Walker's appeal, a document that has been described as, for a brief and terrifying moment, the most notorious document in America. The son of a slave father and a free black mother, David Walker was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, right up there where Scotty Reed is at, perhaps in 1796, 1797. In accordance with existing laws, since his mother was a free black, David Walker was also free. This freedom, however, did not shield him from witnessing firsthand the degradations, degradations and injustices of slavery. He witnesses much misery in his youth, including one disturbing episode of a son who was forced to whip his mother until she died. Walker traveled throughout the country, eventually settling in Boston, but even in that free northern city, with its prevalent discrimination, life was less than ideal for its black residents. Still, Walker apparently fared well, setting up a used clothing store during the 1820s. In Boston, Walker began to associate with prominent black activists. He joined institutions that denounced slavery in the South and discrimination in the North. 
He became involved with the nation's first African-American newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, out of New York City, to which he frequently contributed. By the end of 1828, he had become Boston's leading spokesman against slavery. In September of 1829, he published his appeal to reach his primary audience, the enslaved men and women of the South. Walker relied on sailors and ship's officers sympathetic to the cause who would transfer the pamphlet to southern ports. Walker even employed his used clothing business, which, being located close to the waterfront, served sailors who fought who bought clothing for upcoming voyages. He sold copies of his pamphlet into the lining of the sailors' clothing. Once the pamphlets reached the South, they could be distributed throughout the region. Walker also sought the aid of various contacts in the South who were also sympathetic to the cause. The appeal made a great impression in the South, with both slaves and slaveholders. To the slaves, the words were inspiring and instilled a sense of pride and hope. Horrified whites, on the other hand, initiated laws that forbade blacks to learn to read and banned the distribution of anti-slavery literature. They offered a $3,000 reward for Walker's head and 10000 to anyone who could bring him to the South alive. Friends concerned about his safety implored him to flee to Canada. Walker's responded that he would stand his ground. Somebody must die in this cause, he added. I may be doomed to the stake in the fire or the scaffold tree, but it is not for me to falter if I can promote the work of emancipation. A devout Christian, he believed that abolition was a glorious and heavenly cause. David Walker published a third edition of his appeal in June of 1830. Two months later, he was found dead in his home. Although there was no evidence supporting the allegation, many believed that he had been poisoned. Later scholarship suggests that he died of tuberculosis, the same disease that killed his daughter and we here at new abolitionist radio salute you brother david walker salute yeah um well i'm i don't live around wilmington i'm i'm 100 or so miles away from there um yeah yeah i i I know what you meant i know what you meant but that just gives me an opportunity to mention that uh wilmington has a historically free black community um, through in North Carolina, they're you know historically black free communities who did not sit on the sidelines, um, you know, in in uh, of slavery and actively fought against the mistreatment of um, these human beings and what have you. But um, Wilmington is underwater right now. Got hit hard by Hurricane Florence, and just keep them in your thoughts and your prayers. Um, you know, my final comments. I just want to thank all the listeners. All the callers, um, you know, um, special guests, special voices we've heard tonight um, from the inside. And, you know, I'm just resolved to just stay in this fight to end slavery and play my small role. Amen, Scotty. Uh, Same here. I want to thank all of our participants in phone calls tonight in this conversation, our special guests who called in. You surprised me, Crystal, with with SJ in tow, man. You you surprised me, but that's good. Um, I want to thank everybody that participated and listened to this entire four-part series and its totality. Here's my final statement. When you're talking about something like slavery and a core piece of information that's left out by national design, that's like 150-some-odd years of missing information that could and should change everything you thought you knew, that being the exception clause to slavery. So for all of that time, master teachers and historians have been filling in the blanks with the best explanations they could find. It's our job to take the wisdom they shared and build upon it, not stand on top of it like a wizard screaming, you shall not pass. 
the missing information is available now. Incorporate it and make it make the necessary connections and corrections. There is absolutely no reason for us to stand in refusal when presented with the right and correct evidence. In the history of this nation, after the Civil War, no one has ever tried to challenge the 13th Amendment until these last two generations. So don't tell us what won't, won't work. We're the ones doing something different. Adapt and grow. It's what we're here to do. And remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up.